It's been our habit the last four years to start out the new year with a week of prayer, and we just had an emphasis this past week, and it was a joy to pray, to gather. We had a good group on Tuesday midday, on Wednesday in the evening. A group of us met on Thursday at the midday, and it's just a, it's such a delight to pray together, and I hope that we'll continue in that same uh, incredible opportunity throughout the rest of this year, not just during the first week. And typically after the week of prayer, we turn our attention to a Bible focus. And so that's this, this day. So we're going to be looking at why we spend so much time in our morning services focusing on God's word. It's obviously a value that we have. So the goal of this particular week is to see exactly why we esteem God's word so highly. And there's no better place to go in my mind than Psalm 119. It's just a psalm of praising God for his word. And so grab your Bible, turn to Psalm 119. We'll be in verse 25 this morning. And in that pew Bible, you can find it on page 539. And we always invite you, if you do not have an English Bible at home, we want you to take that Bible, just stop by the connect corner, let them know that you want one. They'll be happy to give you one. And also, if you need any help in how to read the Bible, how to understand it, also go to the Connect Corner. They'll connect you with someone who can help you really get the most out of God's Word as He intended it to be given. Well, we desperately need God's help, don't we? So let's start out by praying and asking Him for that right now. Let's do that. Father, we know that you are perfect, and therefore all your ways are perfect, and your Word, which we have before us today, it's also perfect. So that means it's complete. It lacks nothing. It is it can do all that you intend it to do in our lives. We know that it revives our souls alone. We know that it makes us wise. It makes us understanding. We know that your commandments are true. They are right. And even more than just being true and right, they are sweeter than honey. They're more precious than gold. Forgive us, though, for treating the Bible so casually, for not giving it the attention that it should deserve. And also, God, many times we treat it on par with other human opinions and philosophies. But we want you to look on us with favor. So cause us to revere your word, to tremble at it, and to love you more because of it. And now, Father, I just would ask you for the grace that I could unfold your word, that I would be able to give explanations so that your spirit could give understanding, not just of what it says, but how we should respond in light of this. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the living word. Amen. A young man in, uh, in the Muslim world named Machtaba got arrested and was sentenced to three years in prison. His crime was at 20 years old, he was the pastor of an underground church. It was in a country in which it was illegal to have Christians gathering, and he was the leader of it, so they made an example of him, and he spent three years in prison. He talked about his experience. He said that often he'd be blindfolded, then he'd be beaten, and then he'd be tortured. He recounted spending 22 consecutive days in solitary confinement. And he said that he had moments in which he was so low, he thought he was going to be broken, broken beyond repair, broken emotionally, broken physically. And I wonder, what would you do if you were trying to handle that level of stress? I think about my life and I have some level of stress and I, I tend to get kind of weak need and, and could overly concerned, but that kind of a situation. Well, what Machtava did was he begged one of the clerics, a Muslim cleric in the prison to get him a Bible. 
And God gave him favor with this cleric, and the cleric actually got him pages of an English Bible, which he translated, and then he would use those pages of of Scripture to share with the other prisoners. And through his faithfulness, many other prisoners came to faith in Christ, just with snippets of the Bible. And what he said was that Scripture was his longing. He said it filled him with hope. It brought him true comfort. Here's what he said. Psalms were my therapy, literally medicine for my fear, stress, anxiety, confusion, and uncertainty. Psalm 23 is the highlight for me. Line by line, I experienced it in different situations. That's astounding. He survived that without psychiatric care. He didn't have a life coach to help him. All he had were a few psalms and pages of scripture and God sustained him. Now the reality is, by God's grace, few of us will be in prison for our faith. Few of us will go through that level of stress. But we will go through trials of various kinds. We will have moments in which we are tested. And the question is, what is going to be your reflex action when trials come into your life? When you have anxiety and fear, what are you going to do? How will you respond to that? Well, today's text is going to take us into a very personal and dark experience of one of God's saints. And through his experience, as he worked through that, we're going to be guided to understand how we ourselves can alter the way we think about our trials and gain understanding of how we can be like Machtaba or like the psalmist. So let's Go to God's word, and I invite you to stand with me while we read this incredible text. Psalm 119, starting in verse 25. And this is Holy Scripture. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. I told you about my life, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. I'm weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Keep me from the way of deceit and graciously give me your instructions. I've chosen the way of truth. I've set your ordinances before me. I cling to your decrees. Lord, do not put me to shame. I pursue the way of your commands for you broaden my understanding. Friends, the testimony of the Lord is sure and it makes the simple wise. So welcome it today. You may be seated. This incredible text has really one unifying thought, and I call it the big idea. So here's the big idea for today. Psalm 119, 25 through 32, it moves through three cries. Three cries of anguish and three cries of the the heart of a saint. And these cries help us to know how God's word strengthens you in a trial. So here's the outline, and it's going to help us think through this text. The first cry is the cry of desolation, verses 22 through 25 through 27. There's a cry of desperation in 28 through 29. And finally, the cry of determination at the end, 30 through 32. So we're going to look at the first cry in a moment, but we need an orientation of Psalm 119. And I hope this turns your attention to the psalm that you might give it more space in your life. It's unique. And among all of scripture, it, it has this incredible delight in the authority and sufficiency and the beauty of God's word. 
It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And it's also an acrostic poem. So in the Hebrew alphabet, there are 22 letters. And so you have 22 stanzas. And in each of those stanzas, it starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are eight lines in each stanza. And every line in those stanzas starts with that Hebrew alphabet, that letter. And in fact, the great London preacher Spurgeon, he called this psalm the golden alphabet. Now, if you look at most English Bibles, it's going to have above that stanza the Hebrew letter name. And if you, have, if you look in the Pew Bible, it actually shows you what that Hebrew letter looks like and then has the name next to it, how you'd pronounce that. So you have, for example, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and then today's stanza is Daleth. It's that fourth stanza, like our letter D. It's the Hebrew letter which uses that D sound. Now, this is using every letter of the alphabet to show that God's word is comprehensive. It's showing that God's word is the A to Z of life. And it's focusing all our attention on the all-sufficiency and the total delight of scriptures. And as it does this, it uses eight separate words, all synonyms to describe the Bible. Things like commandments, decrees, statutes. They have subtle and important nuances, but they all are saying God's Word, his inspired and precious word. In fact, there are only four verses out of the 176 that don't specifically refer to God's word, but it definitely is inferring God's word in those verses. Now, in this psalm, it's, it's an autobiographical account of some saint. We don't know who it is, but he's suffering. He's experiencing persecution because he's committed to this word. Now, some people think it's written by Daniel when he's in Babylon. Other people say it's written by David when he was running from the murderous Saul. Others say it was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. It just fits his life situation well. But regardless of the author, these trials are coming because he was determined to follow God's commands. And so it's a guide for every struggling Christian. But even for those who are struggling if they're not trying to follow God's word, there's instruction for us in this. Really, Psalm 119 is an incredible anchor that'll hold us in the worst storm imaginable because God's word has everything we need for life and for godliness. So let's look at this first cry. I want you to notice it. It's a cry of desolation. It begins in verse 25. Look there again. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. He's in misery. I mean, to be down in the dumps, we might use that expression, but this is lower than the dumps. He's in the dust. I like the ESV translation. It's more accurate. It says, my soul clings to the dust. This dust describes an emotional desolation of his soul. It's it's in that part of the world in which to express their grief, they would take dirt in their hands and ashes and they would throw it in the air to land on their body to give an external expression of the internal uh, distress that they had. And it was a fine powder and it, it easily clings to the tear-wet face. And so you could tell this person was in deep anguish just by their exterior. It, it showed how low their soul had gone. But what's interesting, it's not just the dust that's clinging to the psalmist. He is clinging to the dust. It was like super glue that bonded to his soul, to his pain. 
It's demonstrating his total humiliation. He's lying prostrate face down on the ground and he's, he's clenching onto that dirt. That's all he has in life that he can hold onto. And he lacks any strength to, to pull himself up. And I wonder, have you ever been that low? What's the lowest that you've been in life? You might even be at that low point right now. You might say, I've never been lower than this moment. And, and so you know what it, it's like to be like the psalmist at that level. Several years ago, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, a Christian songwriter, went through a, a gut-wrenching low. His youngest daughter was struck by the family car as an older child was backing it out of the driveway and she died. He never experienced anything like that. And trying to work through his grief, he, he wrote an incredible album that has been helpful for so many people. But he has one song in there. It's called Jesus Will Meet You There. Listen to these words. When you think you've hit the bottom and the bottom gives way, when you fall into a darkness no words can explain, and you don't know how to make it out alive, Jesus will meet you there. Now, this level of despondency can happen for a variety of reasons. Sometimes you're minding your own business and then someone turns on you and attacks you. They they sin against you even though you remain faithful to God. That can bring you low. Or desolation can come when you're sinned against and then you add to it your own sin and how you respond to that attack. Desolation also comes when you sin and then you refuse to repent and you remain in your sins. This was David's example with his adultery with Bathsheba. And then to cover it up, he had her husband murdered. And he did a good job keeping it a secret for about a year. He, he tried to push it down to make things look normal. But it was eating him alive. And he wrote about this in Psalm 32. Listen to what he said in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Whatever the situation may be today, beloved, you need to know that there's no place so low that God isn't already there. He he will meet you in those places. And that's where the psalmist is in that, that low place. Jesus knew about this too, didn't he? There he was in the garden waiting for Judas to come and betray him with a kiss. And Luke twenty two forty four says, Being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He even told his disciples how he was feeling in Matthew 26, 38. He said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Perhaps the dirt that the psalmist is clinging to is right there in front of a tomb. The tomb he thinks he's going to be carried into because he won't make it through the night. But beloved, it's so important you know you have a great high priest who can understand and sympathize with the lowest position you can possibly find yourself in. And so I wonder, how should we pray in times like this? The psalmist guides us. Look what he says in verse 25. Give me life through your word. He's saying, revive me. And this is a very strong word he uses. He he is sure the darkness is going to swallow him alive. But he knows his only hope is that God can sustain him. God can breathe life back to him. And he's going to use the common means of his word to do that. 
Now, there are many believers, unbelievers who just cry out for relief to a God that they don't pay attention to at any other time. But when the believer cries out, it's different. He's longing not merely for relief, but life that comes through God's word that's in accordance with God's word. Here's a question. In such desolation, why is he crying out for life according to God's word? Because he knew that in God's word comes life. He knew that the grass may wither, the flowers may fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So of course he's going to pray for this because what else has that kind of stain power that can actually meaningfully meet him in that moment? Now look what this appeal for God's reviving word takes him to. In verse 26, it says, I told you about my life and you answered me. And so he's saying, there's a spark of life starting to come up. He's turning his attention to God's word and he's, he's clinging to the dust. But at that moment, he's thinking about his life. But he's not having a pity party. He's thinking about all the ways that God has been involved in his life. He's carefully noting God was here. I remember God was there. Now, he's not trying to ignore his situation, but he's trying to refocus his attention as the pain continues. He knows that he would have been consumed many other times if it were not for God's constant sustaining grace through God's word. So his, his thoughts are beginning to turn and restoration is beginning to happen. But the desolation hasn't yet lifted. Beloved, you have to understand, this is instruction for us. This is how we are to deal with our desolate soul. So remember this, your heavenly father always hears. He always answers your prayer. And so we cry out to him and we say, I want you to hear about my life. I, I want to remember you. And sometimes as we tell about our ways, we realize, oh, Father, I'm grieved even more because I'm out of step with what your word says I should be like. You, you recognize there is sin compounding your desolation. Perhaps you responded to the ungodly attack with an ungodly response. Perhaps you have cultivated an ungodly attitude toward God himself as you're suffering. If that's the case, there, there's hope. David talked about this. He gave us an example, Psalm 32, verse 5. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The consequences may remain. It may keep on going, but peace will start returning when we make sure that our life is right before the Lord. Now, notice how his grip on that dust is loosening at the end of verse 26. He says, he knows God always answers. And because of that, he says, therefore, teach me your statutes. Now, what a strange request to make at a time like this. He is at the lowest point in his life and he's saying, hey, teach me the word of God. Why would he pray like that? He's asking for God to personally instruct him. Not, not just to know facts. This is an instruction that would show him how he can please God even while the desolation continues. And this is the way that a Christian prays. His desire is 
yes, for relief from that pain. It's not wrong to pray for the relief, but it goes much further. He wants to understand God because of this. He wants to understand God's ways. It's, it's like it says in James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God and who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. That request for wisdom is the wisdom to understand the purpose of the trial that you're going through. It's wisdom means the skill to live through it in a way that'll please God. It's really the prayer for help to apply God's word to your life. So you're praying, show me how to please you during the desolation. You're praying, don't let me waste this trial. I don't want to go through this again because I didn't get it the first time. So the desolation, you see what it's doing here? It's producing in him what he needs the most. A longing for God's word. Because in God's word, he'll get what he needs the most, which is true spiritual restoration. And so he knows he needs more instruction. Now look at how 27 continues it. He says, your instruction, I need your statutes. So to help me to understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. I remember as a young man, I really struggled to understand maths. I'm sure my teacher was doing the best that she could, but I just did not get it. I, I did my assignments, I listened, but it was like a foreign language. And so thankfully there was a, a godly Christian man who took the time to try to help me understand math. Now, it was not easy in the slightest, and I didn't do uh, fantastic in the class, but as my understanding got better, I improved in the class. What to give us better insight into God than the scriptures himself. It's, this is the understanding isn't just about how the grammar works and the syntax and what the words mean. It's, it's how to put this into practice. What this teaches us about God. Now this kind of understanding will transform your life. It, it's precious because it, it shows you how you can endure faithfully regardless of your circumstances. Now, this understanding is given to believers alone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The natural person does not accept the things that are of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. My friend, if you're dead in your sins today, if you're in rebellion to God, you're never going to understand the spiritual the significance of the Scriptures. It'll seem like a fanciful tale a boring tradition that people do, but to the believer, this is life itself. And it comes through the Holy Spirit making it alive to us. So do you see how the desolation is working? It's awakening in the psalmist a longing to know God, to walk in a way that'll please God so that he can know God better. This is what 2 Peter 3.18 says, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I hope even as we're talking about this, there's a desire growing in you that says, yes, I too want to know God in that way. I want to know God's word in that way. Now notice, he's becoming less preoccupied with himself. He, he wants understanding why, so that I can meditate on your wonders. Meditation is pondering deeply. It's reflecting upon. It actually is related to a word that means to mumble. I don't know if you've ever been so deep in your thoughts that you're actually kind of mumbling and whispering out loud. <laughs> I've had people ask me, what did you say? And I realized, oh, I was 
mumbling because I was so intent on what I was thinking about. And meditation is you're absorbed in it and you're treasuring it in your heart. Like Mary, when the, the visitors came, when Jesus was born, and they told her all about the angels, and she treasured these things in her heart. She pondered them. She was meditating on them. Now, in our day today, we get confused because there's a new age meditation, which is about emptying your mind. Biblical meditation, though, is filling your mind with truth. And so the focus is on the truth of God's wondrous works. Now, you can look at nature and you can discern the incredible power of God, but the word of God alone teaches us who God is, the miraculous works that he's done. Biblical meditation then wants to understand God in his word to reveal God to us. And if this musing on God's word doesn't fill you with devotion and praise, then you haven't done biblical meditation. That's the result. That's what it's supposed to do in us. But do you see that the, the normal means through which God gives us help comes by thinking hard about his word? Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2.7. He said, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In fact, Jesus said you cannot love God unless you use all of your mind and engage all of your strength to understand God because he's that complex, that deep but one of the most difficult challenges for the desolate soul is to break out of that internal feedback loop that keeps coming back to your own trials and your problems. Now, this isn't ignoring your problems, but it's refocusing your attention to where you're going to get true help. And so the psalmist is crying in desolation, and then God's helping him look beyond himself to thinking about God. And this is the cure for despondency. Not self-introspection, but to contemplate who God is. And this begins with a cry for help. We ask God for help. And then it turns into confidence. Okay, I'm going to take one step to try to put this into practice. I'm going to fix my thoughts on God, even if it's just for 30 seconds. And the desolation continues. You think it's not working, but God said to do it. So I'm going to, I'm going to try. And as you press on, you find there's just enough, step for one, enough strength for one more step. And then there's enough strength for thinking 10 seconds more about God's wondrous works. And then you notice that your grip on the dust is released. Instead, your hands are starting to turn upward and praise to God. As I thought about this passage and I thought about you, I was thinking there's probably not a person here who has not been through some level of despondency. And it may look different than the person next to you, but no matter the cause of it, the answer is always the same. You need the word of God. Now, friend, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, God's word will be of no help to you except in this very important thing. It's a cure for your spiritual death. Because it says in 1 Peter 2, 1, 23, that you can be born again through the imperishable living and abiding word of God. The grace to repent, the faith to believe comes as the preacher declares and explains the word of God to you. And suddenly your eyes are open and you say, well, I've never seen this before. Who is this God in these pages? And you've been like that, born again. And it comes through the preaching of God's word. And Christian, the same word that regenerated you from death makes you strong in the faith. We saw this also in 1 Peter 2, 2. He said that God's word is like pure spiritual milk. It causes you to grow up into salvation. And so this cry of desolation, 
It shows us how God's word strengthens us in any trial. And God uses that desolation to trust in his word even more. Next, I want you to notice the cry of desperation. Look at verse 28. He says, I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Okay, there's a shift happening, but he is still in a bad place. Now listen closely. Sometimes God doesn't lift the trial because its purpose hasn't been accomplished yet. It's like wet cement. It needs to set a while longer before it makes a firm foundation to build your life on. Now this word, he talks about being weary. It's a vivid word in the Hebrew. It means to leak, to drip. It's like rainwater that, that's coming through your, your ceiling. It's a hole in the roof. A better way we could translate this line is, my soul melts away for sorrow. Under the heat of the trial, your soul is dripping away. You don't know if you're going to survive. Why? It's because of this grief, this mental anguish. It's desolation, but now it's turning into desperation. God has not brought the relief yet because, again, the work's not finalized. I wonder, beloved, what grieves your soul? What is that weightiness that comes upon you? The Apostle Paul felt it for different reasons. He was grieved that the Jews were rejecting the gospel. He was grieved when the faith of believers was shaken by false teachers. He was grieved over the indwelling sin in his own life, that he still had to battle every day. But the problem isn't the grief. The problem is how you respond to the grief when you turn inward instead of Godward. Now, Peter sought to bring correction and to help us again in his first letter of chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, talking about your salvation, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, did you hear the God-centeredness? That even as the various trials are grieving us, the goal is that we would look toward the return of Jesus Christ. What this desperation does is it focuses us on him. Look at the end of verse 28 there. He says, strengthen me through your word. The desperation crystallizes his condition. He knows now how weak he has always been. And then it focuses him on the solution to be strengthened through God's word. He's not trifling around with man-made solutions like behavior modification or breathing techniques. He knows that only God's word can do what's needed in his soul. And so he's desperate for that, for God's word. And it says, when he says, strengthen me through your word, that word strengthen is rare. It, It means cause me to stand upright. He wants to get out of the dust. He wants to get up, but he can't. And he's not sure if he does stand, he'll have the fortitude to persevere. Now, the restoration is in full swing, but he doesn't feel the change. He still feels that desperation. And his desperation, though, is not just to escape the situation. He's desperate to understand God's word, and that's the purpose of the trial. It's to focus his attention on what God's word can do. This is exactly what you need, beloved, This is what the purpose of the the desolation, it's to cause your soul to turn to Christ. The desperation is to cause you to be desperate for God and to turn to him and his word which will strengthen you. 
but he knows the greatest danger he's facing at this moment. Look at verse 29. He says, keep me from the way of deceit. The way of deceit here is the way of folly. It's a worthless way. It's not just that people might trick him, but that he might turn and believe lies about God. What is concern here is he himself will give in to temptation and sin and ruin the whole thing. And he's desperate not to go that direction. He knows he's weak. He knows temptation is strong, but he wants to be faithful. What he knows is that revenge against those who have harmed him, that's a false way. He knows that hate is a false way. He knows that unforgiveness is a false way. He knows that gossip and slander, that lashing out, those are false ways. He knows that it might seem satisfying, but in the end, it's just going to amplify his pain and dishonor God. So here's a psalmist. He's in a terrible place. Others have sinned against him. He's experienced firsthand how destructive sin can be. And it, it wakes his soul up to, see, to say, far be it from me that I would do the same thing and add that kind of dishonor to God and hurt to other people. Now, he's in the lowest place he's ever been. And he's starting to have confidence that God sees him in that pit. He was thinking a lot like the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, he was in Jerusalem. The horrific Babylonian siege was in full swing. It was a time of disease, starvation, treachery. Parents were eating their children to stay alive. It was horrific. And he was grieved, Jeremiah, because the city, which was set apart to bring glory to God, was weighed, was weighed down by the sin of the people. And so listen to the grief that consumed Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.17. He said, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. His hope barely had a pulse. But this served to stir up in Jeremiah desperation for God. And this is how he continues to pray. In Lamentations 3, listen to verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The desperation is still there. The desolation is all around him, but he's reorienting his soul to what he knows of God from his word. And then comes verses 31 and 32. He says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. This is what stabilized the trembling prophet, and it'll stabilize you too, beloved. Thinking on the steadfast love of the Lord, it builds assurance that you know his mercies will be new every morning. His mind is fixed not just on what God has promised, but that God has a perfect record of keeping his promises. Now notice he didn't strengthen himself through positive self-talk. He didn't use techniques of counting or breathing. It came through meditating on the wonder-working God. And so he knows he does not want to have any part of those deceitful ways. And so he cries out, graciously give me your instruction. He wants God's resources so we can live right. He can honor God even as he continues in a world gone wrong. Now, God's objective and instruction isn't just to give us more facts about God, but it's to give us a concrete foundation on which to build. 
far better than some inner voice, a, a quiet whisper we might think we're hearing or some sort of a hunch we have. We know that in, back in verse 9 of Psalm 119, he's depending on God's word to not go down the false way. He says there in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. You see, in the moment of temptation, God's word will act like guardrails around him to keep him on the path so he won't go careening off the edge of the cliff into destruction for his soul. He remembered God is doing something great here. Listen to what he's doing in Romans 5, verse 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When you don't feel like it, this is happening under the surface. This is going on and, and you can open up and read God's all-sufficient word and say, I'm going to trust God. He's doing that. And for now, my role is to just stay on this path. Following the example of the psalmist, it'll take all the strength you have. But beloved, there's enough strength for today. There's enough grace to make it one more step. So we've seen two cries, the cry of desolation, the cry of desperation, and it shows us that God's word will strengthen us in our worst trial. But I want you to notice the final cry, the cry of desperation, of determination. It starts in verse 30. He says, I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinances before me. Now he's begged to be kept from the false ways, but this isn't enough. It's not just keep me from there. He says, I've got to pursue the way of truth. He's made a choice. It's a careful, well-thought-through choice. He considered all of his options. He considered all that God has done, all of his wondrous works, and he concluded the way of truth is far safer. It's far superior to any human solution. You see, the faithful way is trustworthy, and all those on it have assurance. But this choice requires hard work. He isn't setting God's ordinances him like, you casually put a, a vase of flowers on the table. His attention is fixed on them. This is the hard work that it takes to memorize God's word. It, it requires more and more grace to fix your mind on there. Bible memorization is indispensable in this work. Just, if you could just memorize one verse a month, you would have Psalm 23 in your gaze in just six months. It's what sustained Majtaba in prison, and it could sustain you as well. With one verse a week, you'd have 52 verses in a year that would keep you on the way of truth. Also, you must be reading God's word every day, regardless of how it makes you feel. By faith, you're saying, this is good for my soul. I'm going to read it. I'm going to focus on it. And it's so basic. But remember, man does not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, as you long to have the false ways of worldly entertainment and philosophies taken from you, you're not going to make progress setting God's ordinances in front of you unless you take off these things. You remove them from your life. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 instructs us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do this? 
Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. That's how you run well. You've got to lay aside these things that are, are like sugar, that offer no nutrition for you. So the psalmist, he made a choice. He acted on it. But look at the intensity of his determination in verse 31. He says, I cling to your decrees. This is a significant change, isn't it? How did he start out back in verse 25? Clinging to the dust. And now his soul is being super glued to God's decrees. He is looking to God in a way that he's never looked before. He's been sifted like wheat. And the, prophet, the process has confirmed that God's word is good. In the same way, beloved, your trials are meant to cause you to cling to God for dear life. There's nothing else that's going to be able to support you. This is a word that means to cleave to. Like in Genesis, it says, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's, it's a cleaving that it's such a tight grasp. There's no room for anything else. It's exclusive. And it's on God's word that you do this. Now, clinging to scripture is how you actually cling to God himself. Moses wrote Deuteronomy eleven twenty two: Be careful to do all this commandment that I have commanded you, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, holding fast to him. Now, God's word is such a manifestation of God that to cling to his commandments is the same as clinging to God himself. We don't make an idol out of the Bible, but rather the Bible shows us who God is and that's who we cling to. It's been said that Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to be nothing, that he might spend his next 40 years proving God to be everything. The dust clinging days will do this for us. If you determine that you're going to cling to God's word, you're going to have conflict. It's going to come. That conflict is necessary to teach you how to cling even more tightly to God's word and to have greater assurance in it. So determined to cling to God's word by mastering this book. Know it better than your favorite football team. Know it better than any movie or musical artist. Know it better than your hobbies and the foods that you eat. Master this book or better yet, be mastered by it. Because when you do, you will not be put to shame. No, the world's going to embarrass you. They're going to mock you. They're going to tell you you're a horrible person for holding to biblical sexual ethics. They're going to tell you you're a horrible person for holding on to this archaic view of the world. But before God, you will not be ashamed. He will be pleased with you. You'll not be humiliated. And God's word will be clarity and conviction even as you undergo ongoing public ridicule. Now look at how this determination increases in verse 32. I pursue the way of your commandments for you broaden my understanding. The psalmist has been revived by God's word. He has a second wind. And instead of turning away because he's feeling better and saying, thanks a lot, God, I'll talk to you later. He says, no, I need more of this. Now he's able to do what he's always wanted to do with greater zeal. He will vigorously run in the way of God's commandments. A Christian, in, in your life, you're never going to drift toward godliness. No one casually becomes more godly. It requires running with perseverance. It requires the tenacity that Paul talked about, Philippians 3, 13 through 14. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You cannot run tomorrow's race with today's grace. It requires faith that tomorrow there'll be more than enough grace waiting for you regardless of the trial. And you're going to walk, you're going to pursue God, and he will strengthen you, beloved. How do you do this? Paul gives us instruction in Philippians 2.12. It's a real command. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you, beloved, you work it out. But listen to what God says right afterwards as a promise for those who are working it out. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you know why you can take that next step? Do you know why you can run in the way of God's commandments? It's because God gives you both the desire and the do. He gives you the, the work and the will. You can make this through because God in every step is empowering you, but in such a way that you feel your strength is going to give out, but somehow you take another step. What this vivid picture does is it shows us what he longs the most, the purpose of running in God's commandments is at the end here that you would broaden my understanding. A better way to translate this is you will enlarge my heart. An enlarged heart is a joyful heart. It is one that has a greater capacity to be filled with greater amounts of God's joy and love. It's a liberated heart, unfettered heart, even if that trial continues. It's the heart that knows personally what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who labor and all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. James 1, 2 talks about this enlarged heart. It's the heart that can count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. What an incredible journey the psalmist has taken us into the depths of his heart. I don't know if you've ever walked with someone in this level of grief, but you have now through his testimony to us. In just eight verses, we get the pathway forward. But did you notice there are no dates, no deadlines in this passage? Look, this might take days, it might take weeks, it could take years, beloved. But God's word is true. And it doesn't matter how intense the trial is, God's word is sufficient for every situation that you go through. A friend, these promises are only for believers. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, do so now. Turn from your sin. Turn from your personal ways of trying to make life work and surrender your life to the good and wise and, and holy Christ. Now look, you can reject Christ. You can reject everything I've said today and, and try to find relief in other ways and you will find some measure of relief. But there will be no relief on the day of judgment. When you stand before God and you face up for all of your rebellion against him. You need forgiveness today. And then God will help you walk in the ways of his commandments. Now, beloved, I know this looks impossible. That's why we are here to help walk with you through this. Don't do this alone. You need someone to walk with you. I want the music team, if you would come back up.
for our last song. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4 tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through his divine power. And that power is released through his precious and very great promises. They're in his word. This is a firm foundation that we have. I encourage you as we sing together, sing with faith and confidence in who our God is. Let's stand together and do that.